Hello, Jagesh Paria, and welcome to This Is Bam, a podcast with, for, and about the lived experiences of black and minority ethnic women and girls. Today, I'm speaking to Candice Cunningham. Candice, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Hello. Um, my name is Candice Cunningham. I am soon to be 37 years old. I'm originally from California. And I'm living here in Paris, France for the last 10 years. Um, So originally from California, I moved here to be a French major. So I did complete a bachelor's degree in French studies, but then decided to become a fitness coach. So the last seven, eight years, I've been working professionally as a fitness expert in Paris um, and recently opened up my own studio about a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, and have been focused on that ever since. Uh, during that time, I had a child, well, three years ago, so a boy who is uh, three and a half, and I also have a 10-year-old stepdaughter um, as well. First question I have for you is, going down the road of wanting to learn French and French culture, French history, I presume, in France, and then how that led you to a different trajectory? Um, Well, uh, in high school, I made fun of all the French speakers when they would come sing their French Christmas songs when I was in Spanish class. That was my elected language. Um, But I was always into sports and dance. So I was always just very um, into movements since I was a kid. And into body and into health, um, especially as a teenager, um, going through eating disorders and body dysmorphia and all that. I was really obsessed with nutrition and working out, not usually often for the best of reasons, but I was always involved in it. And later uh, got more involved in dancing and dancing professionally, which then led me to work on cruise ships in Hawaii. So working on Kushiban in Hawaii, I met a French guy and fell obviously deeply in love with him, crazy madly in love, enough to learn French and to move to Paris <laughs> and uh, reside here illegally <laughs> every 90 days until my visa was up and then go back to the U.S. for about two weeks and then come back into the country for another three months. Um, and so I remember coming to Paris the first time, I was about 20. And it felt, the, the best way I can explain it, it felt like putting on a coat that finally fit right. Like it was snug and warm and just, it fit me. And I felt like I found a place um, that was just me. So um, for me in my mind, I was like, I need to be here. This is where I want to be. And then the language was just a bit like the consequence of, of this, this relationship. Um and realized that I was really into languages and I realized that after breaking up with this French guy and then dating other foreign guys because I would only date foreign guys um, for whatever reason, <laughs> American guys were a bit uh, too American. And so I started to learn Serbian, dated a Serbian. So I just realized language was something that I really, I really liked. At the same time, I was dancing and I was teaching. So France kind of got into the picture with the cruise ships, um, but dance remained my principal activity and I was a dance major um afterwards when I realized in the U.S. you don't need to be have a bachelor's or master's in dance to actually teach 
as I was teaching, I decided to go for something a bit more academic. And I chose French, I chose uh, French language. And uh, I always loved history and uh, always loved the cultural studies. I think having a multicultural background, I was always interested in, um, in that. And then also realizing through all this that I did have French relatives and I had French, you know, like, I think like a 16th French or something kind of just like, you know, put me onto this course of, of language studies with always this idea of going into maybe linguistics or going into um, other language studies, like with a master's, if ever, that ever I felt called to go back to school. So um, that's how I got into French. And then I decided to come here for, for study abroad. And then I uh, just never left. You know, and you can't be a French teacher in France. You have to be French for that. Uh, and, you know, that's a good thing. And um, and so so I just when needed to assimilate and integrate into the society, into, into, into the country. And you don't have any relatives in France, right? No, none. At such a young age, you, you felt at home, as you said, fit you like a glove being in Paris, being in France. Um, and, and it sounds like that all happened just by chance. This one guy on the cruise ship um, that led you to to where you are today. But I always was intrigued by like adventures as a kid, and I knew like since since a really young age, like I wanted to 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 break out and to see the world. And you know, I was 18, and I got a chance to move to Hawaii. I was like, yes, I'm moving to. It wasn't even a chance that was given. I think it was a chance that I sought out actively, sought out. A way to get out of my town and to go spread my wings like as the old cliche you know <laughs> expression goes um but you know my dad filled us up with lots of um old western stories like exploring like the western frontier Lewis and Clark you know it's just always this lots of camping lots of making fires and it's just always a sense of adventure that I think I always liked and was drawn to and so Going to Hawaii and being on this cruise ship, it was the most improbable thing that could happen to me, as later we'll talk about coming from single parent and being Mexican-American when there were certain expectations of me as a demographic um, that I should have been doing other than dancing in the middle of the ocean and then like moving to Europe and traveling like all over the place. So it felt definitely like it was uh, feeding into breaking um, I don't know, the preconceived notions and, um, and limitations that I should have had. Um, so it was kind of addictive to have those bragging rights of like, I did go to university and I did do this and I did travel here and I, you know, and, um, and, uh, I went much further and beyond what, what could be expected of, of someone like me. Yeah. Um, how, how has it been like to open up a fitness studio in in middle of Paris? The backdrop of COVID has obviously coloured your experience and your business. Can you talk us through some of that? And maybe there's some lessons that you've learned that, that you can see now, but maybe you'll see, <laughs> you'll see more of those lessons um, a bit further down the line as we right. head towards hopefully the end of COVID. <laughs> It is, uh, you hear a lot of people say having your own business opening up is like having a newborn, a new baby. And that's like, it's definitely true. 
the fatigue is real at the very beginning. It was very exciting. You're pumped up with, uh, there's a lot of adrenaline, um, the work's being done, seeing the space transform into what you want it to become. Um, you know, without, with David, David, uh, who's my, uh, business partner and, uh, baby daddy, uh, <laughs> my partner in all things, he, you know, he's a big, big, big part of it. It would not have gone off the ground without him. He, he, he was the one with the upfront investment of money to put into the project and the one with, you know, the credit and the one who can ask the bank and, you know, being French, um, definitely as an American doing it by myself would have been a whole different experience. But so he got the ball rolling with it. And uh, obviously it was a collaboration. Um, so at the very beginning, it's exciting. Uh, then the fatigue sets in and you open it up. And um, at one point, you know, I remember standing in the center of it and um, in the middle of the of one of the spaces and just thinking like, this is, this is actually really cool. This is actually awesome. But then, before COVID, prior to COVID, we did have the Gilets Jaunes, the protesters. Um, and we had strikes. Um, we had a lot of other things going on that were causing people to not be able to get to the space. So definitely, like, loss of revenue for several months. Um, and, then, and then COVID happened. So uh, that has been exhausting experience in the sense that you're, it's constant adaptation constant pivoting and you're also dealing with at the same time a partner who is just as present as you are in it and who's we're kind of dealing emotionally with the um with the pandemic and in our own ways we all have our own um worries and our own um uh, triggers and um having to run a business and to deal with with those together has been very been very difficult david who um one day just you know, we all kind of have these little mini breakdowns, meltdowns, who said, um, we're doing, you know, everything we're doing is just shit because we're doing it half-assed. We're doing half-assed everything for the kids, for the business, for our relationship, for all these things. Um, and I had to stop him finally because I had heard it so many times and saw that this was his perceptive perception of what was going on or how we were dealing with things. And I had to tell him, actually, we're doing a really great job. Um, we're exhausted. We feel like we're not doing a good job, but we're doing a really good job. We're keeping the business open and afloat, um, you know, despite everything. We're keeping the kids healthy and, um, you know, we're still going. We're digging heels in and still doing it. So I think we're doing actually a really good job. Um, but um, it's not every day that you feel that, that way. Firstly, thank you for sharing something so raw and honest, because these are the stories that often we don't hear. And anybody coming in might think, wow, they're doing such a great job and everything looks so shiny um, and well put together. But there are real trials and tribulations going on behind the scenes. You're in a business relationship with your partner. He's also your partner at home. He's also your partner when it comes to raising the children. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity for conflict in all of these different areas. And so, you know, as you rightly said, you're keeping everything moving, even though it feels hard, it's still moving. Yeah, the conflict is definitely there. Got professional conflict, parental parenting conflict, uh, relationship conflict. It's been a lot of turning the other cheek. It's been a lot of don't turn the other cheek and look the person dead in the eye and tell them exactly how you feel. Um, it's been a lot of disappointments, uh, expectations of the other person, 
falling through. Um, and then also a lot of self-reflection, like why is this bothering me? Or it forces you to look at yourself constantly. I think COVID's done that to a lot of people on their own professional level, even if it's not the same kind of dynamic where you live with your work partner, you, you know, that I have, but I think it's forced a lot of people to, 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 to look at their, their profession, at their a relationship, at their parenting, at their everything. Um, but it has been a good opportunity if we, you know, look for silver linings to do work on yourself, well, work from on myself, um, you know, I don't know if David's doing the same work. I think maybe, I think he is. I've seen a couple of changes though. Um, but doing a lot of work on myself and, um, and, you know, and then also doing that psychoanalysis, that auto psychoanalysis where we're, you know, looking at a lot of things like regarding my mother. And, um, I've had a lot of that, a lot of that over the last, um, since March, since the pandemic is, is, having these sort of weird flashbacks of like, okay, now I see my mom, but now I see her in a different way because my mom was a businesswoman. She's been a businesswoman her entire life. So I, I definitely get these, these kind of correlations of where I am in my life and how I'm opening up a business. And then having a kid, I'm not a single mother as she was, but sometimes I feel like I am with a work partner, you know, who's, who's holding down the fort somewhere else when you're holding down the house fort. But, um, um, correlations with her and what she must have been going through, having her own business, having her children, um, and then also trying to have romantic relationships along the way. So I've seen and had these little tiny flashbacks of like better understanding her and then at the same time better understanding myself and things that I might have done, might be doing or have done consciously and, and subconsciously over the last like couple of years since I've been a mom and opened the business, which all kind of happened at the same time, it feels. And so let's go down the road of um, your childhood then. We have spoken on a number of occasions about the poverty mindset and how much of a child's formative years of experiencing the world really impacts how they experience the world as an adult. You grew up in a single parent household with two other siblings in California and your mum's Mexican, and so your mixed heritage. As you said, your mum has had businesses throughout your your childhood, and and juggling all these different responsibilities. How was it for you, and how has that affected your lived experience today as an adult? Um, I have a tendency of looking at, you know, the adversity that I had as a kid as like a blessing in disguise. So I tend to shine like more positive light on 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 my childhood, despite um, that had happened uh, with my parents, um, uh, single parenting, etc. Um, so I look at it as a blessing in disguise, having a single mother who was obviously busy, <laughs> very busy with work, um, trying to make ends meet. Um, you know, and, and maybe not physically being there at certain times. Mom, single working mother, um, dad did not pay any child support. Um, so it was just all on mom. My older sister lived with her father the majority of the time, as she was my half-sister. And I was with my little sister. So mom having to be at work all the time, 
whether it was her own business that she was working or whether it was um, another kind of job, uh, sort of forced me to become the bigger sister role and take care of my little sister, um, always having to help out around the house, um, learning to not really ask for a lot because always being reminded that there was just no money. And um, that just being a normal. And um, I think those things actually have a lot of positive impact in my life today. Um, but there are definitely, and I started to become a bit more and more aware of what negative effects that that could have had had today as an adult. Um, I'm not going to say I'm irresponsible with money, but I'm not very good with money. Um, I try to earn as much as I can and try to use as less as possible. So I, I don't tend to have any kind of like unhealthy spending habits or, you know, not very, not to invest in, in things that are not thought, thought out. But I definitely don't have any education in saving money, investing money long term or in um, or any kind of like investments in a future retirement or anything like that. So I though I don't have any kind of unhealthy spending. You don't have any vices. I don't have any vices. No. I have zero vices. But yet somehow I still don't have maybe enough money at the end of the month. So I never had tools to learn how to do that. Um, and also, you know, in, in my own fault, never sought to learn how to do that. Aside from maybe one or two times where I did have a small investment, uh, small little savings uh, with a small return that I was putting away, which I ended up having to use because I moved to France. Um, but I was lucky that I had that money saved. I had this example of working hard the example of not spending carelessly, but not the example of going beyond. So, um, so I don't, I don't really know um, how to manage it in the most, in the most fruitful way. And I see myself repeating the same things that my mother would repeat, you know, at uh, at the end of the month or or even, you know, in any day of the week. But then again, I, I have a hard time to sort of criminalize any of that because it's, you know, at the end of the day, don't waste the food that's on your plate. Don't buy it if it's not necessary. You know, if you want it, work for it. So I always feel like those can't be bad things, but yet somehow um, I, you know, I don't know what I'll do when I'm an old lady because I have no... <laughs> No savings account and no, you know, maybe I can buy a ticket to go to California if yeah. I need to, you know. Like. So full back plan. Yeah, full back. back. Yeah. Would you say that that's something that is really important for, for women particularly? Because I know I've read some of the research out there around women who retire living in poverty. Some women are actually living in poverty. And it sounds as though it's... For you, you just haven't been able to make that third leap, that third stage of planning for the future, yeah. financial planning for the future. I think everything for my mom was survival all the time. And that's why there was no planning for the future, because you're just so in the immediate, I need to survive right now, that I, I don't have the privilege or the luxury of thinking about my retirement or thinking about the future. And... Um, and I don't know if with also 
with opening up the studio and then now certainly with COVID, it's become survival. So it's just any idea of that third step or looking at that third step to think about the future um, seems like it's even more important now than before, but how financially, if right now it's, it's financial survival. Um, but I think, yeah, I think my mom was so in that. And I think I just grew up in that, that that became normal to me was that we don't really think about the future because we're just thinking about the now. Um, and that, that just became habitual, habitual thinking that was just part of my education. So um, taking that third step was obviously just never really, not that it wasn't an option, um, because I definitely, with the income that I'm earning today, I could create a savings account and invest in little things here and there. Um, but um, I just think that it was never a priority because we just never talked about the future in that sense. And I think that's just from being born until, from my first memory until I was like 18, 19, or even after when I would be at my mom's living with her for a little bit here and there during school, um, it was just always pay rent this month and we'll worry about the rest later. Mm -hmm. Pay rent this month mm -hmm. and we'll worry about the rest later. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a trap, unfortunately. Um, and my mom was a success story of her generation. So, and I'm a success story story of my generation but yet somehow even if I'm more educated than my mother and more experienced at my age than my mother had at her age um I still haven't been able to get out of that way way of living habit of living and habit of thinking so I think it wouldn't be much for me to take that third step but it's just not something that was like in my life right you know yeah yeah, so yeah. if you're happy doing so, I want to go back to an earlier point you made about having an eating disorder and body dysmorphia. With hindsight, just with, you know, coming out of it, coming through the other the other end of it. And it's been years um, since all that kind of ended, um, more or less, because I don't think you ever completely recover, even if even if. You do, there's just wounds from it that are somehow still present. If not slightly open, they're just there, um, sealed, but, you know, but there. And um, looking back, it was, they talk about a lot of eating disorders being about control. So it definitely was about control. Um, it started when I was about 12 or 13. Uh, when I was 12 was when my, my father was sent to prison. And, um, and I was not given really a lot of information as to why, just that he was gone and you'll never see him again was basically the conversation that was had. So it was a bit brutal. Um, and, um, I think that that mixed with puberty mixed with going into middle school, high school, um, identity, body changing, hormones, just the whole mix of it. I think it was just a ripe, like, situation for something like that to happen. Um, so I, and there was a lot of rage, uh, which later find out that rage and depression are very um, intimately connected. Uh, and so 
uh, yeah, it was around 12 or 13, I just started experimenting with bulimia and um, long periods of not eating, but um, definitely hated everything about myself um, from my face to my body um, to wherever I was lacking uh, intelligence-wise or capacity-wise. I was extremely hard on myself, very critical uh, of, of my defaults and my shortcomings. Um, you know, I've done a lot of psychoanalysis with it. Uh, was it because I, I do represent so much of my father because I felt like I had a very, very, I had a lot of masculine energy. And I, as a, I felt more connected to masculine energy as a kid, being a tomboy and, um, and just sort of this kind of relationship I had with, with my father, the short relationship I did have with him. I look like him. Um, I act like him. I was just very much him. Um, and so for him to be someone that was such a hated figure by everybody in my family, how could that not have had an effect on the way that I see myself or that I believe other people see me? Um, how can that be a constant reminder to my mother if I look so much like him or if I act so much like him? Uh, and so I, I think there was a bit of that going on. And then also the whole idea of fitting in and not finding a place. Um, and that being on the, the physical aspect and also to being maybe the only person amongst my cousins and even my older sister, me and my little sister, we are, you know, we're the hybrids. We're the Mexican-Americans. We're the part of my dad being Irish-Italian and then my mom being Mexican. We're the ones that didn't really speak Spanish. We're the ones that were a little bit more white, um, had white friends. Whereas all the other family members were Mexican, Mexican, Mexican dad, Mexican mom. They spoke Spanish. Um, and so not really fitting in with the Mexicans, but then not really fitting in with the white people because my white friends were a bit more like upper middle class and we were like upper lower class. And sometimes getting side eye from parents and not really feeling welcomed in their homes. I just thought it was because I was annoying, but, you know, is it, was it, you know, I was an annoying kid. Was it also because, you know, we were not of the same, like, kind of social class. So um, just constantly feeling like not having my place. Um, and I honestly didn't feel like I had my place until, until, like, I kind of moved to France and then and for the first time that I fit in somewhere. Um, and was that because it was a blank? page almost maybe maybe because it's totally there's, there's a, what it was right because it's not like you had anything here that you knew you know, people the culture's still very fairly new that kind of stuff I mean I felt similarly when I moved to Paris as well it, it gave me the space and a blank sheet but also the space to just rediscover myself and to re-identify or rebrand yourself yes. I don't really like saying that word but but that's what it was. I'm not trapped in any of these preconceived ideas of who I am and what I can be. Here I am. And then, you know, yeah, my ego, I'm a young, you know, exotic looking. People don't know what I am when they would see me. For some reason, now people know I'm Mexican, which I find really strange. But before, no one wouldn't guess. It'd be like Brazilian, Filipina, like, you know. And um, to have that kind of attention where it's like, here, I don't look like everybody else. Here, I'm unique. And it's not like, Oh, you know, just another one of you. 
And, um, you know, my ego totally had this, this nice little boost. I was in a completely toxic relationship, but (laughs) which, you know, luckily ended, but, um, um, you know, being here was just like, yeah, you get to write your own kind of narrative of who you are and there's really no one around you. They have ideas when they see you, but it's not as intimate as like being back in California. And, um, you know, and even that even kind of also started to happen in Hawaii, but Hawaii still being, you know, the United States and so whatever, um, wasn't that real, like definitive breakaway from it. So that could, that could very well have been it. Like, and the bulimia basically ended, um, around the time that I ended that relationship. So it lasted from about 12, 13 until I was about 21. Gosh, yeah. And, um, was it, was it quite, was it intense throughout that period or was it something that had its high moments and then it calmed down and then there were peaks and troughs? There was peaks and troughs. Like it was really primarily intense around 13, 14 years old. Um, and then kind of continued, but then that sort of gave way to a little bit more of like alcohol abuse, partying, uh, around 15, 16, um, and then, you know, and then that also kind of gave to like other destructive behaviors, like promiscuity, sexual promiscuity, things like that. Like just really that deep rage that I was unable to express only through self-destructive behavior, um, which, you know, through just luck maybe or divine intervention uh, luckily nothing really terrible ever ever happened to me um but it kind of at some point and I did have small interventions like my mother I had to go to therapy they tried antidepressants they tried anti-anxiety medication lots of these things um that I think were just never completely seen through all the way to the end as like a therapy I think it was just an attempt to like, I'm desperate. I don't know what to do for my daughter. So I'm going to try this. I'm going to do this. But, um, she was pulled in so many directions and me being a defiant, stubborn teenager that I was, and also having like kind of my own free will to also not go to, um, therapy and refusing things, uh, medication. She did the best that she could. And, um, so, you know, despite those interventions, um, losing friendships, losing relationships, heartbreak, things like that, because it ruins parts of your life, you know, it's destructive, you set fire to it, it's going to, you know, it's also going to destruct things within that close proximity to you, so at some point, it just ran its course, and at some point, call it, like, like I said, luck, or, or divine intervention, it was just one day where I said, this is enough, and just needs to stop, it needs to stop, yeah, and it did, Mm. um, and then that opened a whole new door to new kind of types of vices and which were not as like auto, you know, auto destructive, but were also not that healthy. And that was primarily through relationships. And then until like you lose enough people in your life or you lose out on enough relationships and you just, you know, and then that runs its course. And then it's just like this also, this is not working for me. So um, I consider myself relatively lucky to have a kind of inner voice that's relatively stable and loud enough to like to, to, to hear it and be like, okay, no, you're right. Like this is not working for me. Yeah. Whereas, no, it doesn't serve you. 
as my mom likes to say, so it's one of like the repetitive mantras. Does this serve you? How does this serve you? Oh, it doesn't serve me, so to get rid of it. You know? So, um, you know, and then that can just be with maturity as well. Um, but we do see a lot of other women around me that are older than me that it hasn't clicked and, you know, and, and you don't know if it's that let it run its course and they got to hit rock bottom until they're going to be open and maybe like receptive to, uh, to advice or to their own inner voice. Sure. Is there anything that you wish you had known or did when you were younger Oh my God, I wish I would have just liked myself. Like, just wish I would have, if I could tell myself anything, just be like, you're so cool. Like, and you're not perfect. That's okay. You know, just wish I would have had more confidence, whether that was something that I could have been born with (laughs) or something that my parents could have been capable of giving me. I came from this kind of very typical Mexican family where we make fun of each other a lot. There's a lot of that. And there's a lot of, like, remarks on the physical, on the exterior. And, um, you know, and even if we know we all do it and we all know it's jokes, it still seeps in. It goes in there. It seeps in. And, um, you know, and so it would have been nice had I had, uh, you know, a family that was a little bit more aware of that. You know, but they're not. And I can't, I'm not going to be angry at them and waste time being angry at them for, for these things. But... I like wish I could have just had this confidence that I feel I saw other girls around me having. And I think even to this day, like there's teenage Candace that's jealous of these other, other adults who were able to have more positive kind of high school experiences because they were not boy crazy for A and B C reasons. They seemed that their value was not attached to their bodies and it seemed like it was pure freedom to them. And they had that, this just like great high school experience because they were more than, than, than their physical, their physical appearance. And I wish that I could have had that, but it's what I have now. So I feel like, okay, I've, you know, you got there in the I end. got there in the end, yeah. you know? Um, but man, like it's such a awesome time that 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 period in your life and it 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 just could have possibly probably would have been a lot better had I had I had that um but that's a hard question to wish like something would have been different you know sometimes I story I tell myself that's what we do right we tell ourselves stories to survive so one (laughs) of the stories that I told myself is it's actually a blessing in disguise that my dad left um because he's very laissez-faire and his problem with drugs and his problems with alcohol um, and his traumas that he had as a kid um, is what I was able to gather later on was the physical abuse and emotional abuse that he had on his side of the family. Um, that would have seeped in somewhere too, you know. So probably best that he wasn't there and I just had my one mom who, you know, loved me regardless of everything. And, um, and um, you know, so yeah, maybe there were some daddy issues which in the end got more or less resolved, you know, but, um, and they did cause me to have this new cause. It was a part of the reason why my adolescence was such a nightmare, but, um, you know, so I can't even wish that that would have been different. Although when he was dying, um, and when he passed, um, about 10 years ago, it was the one thing that 
I kept repeating was I wanted more time. So um, not really related to, to your question, but if there was anything that I wish that I would have had, was probably had more time with him. I mean, not necessarily as a child, but maybe as an adult. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And... I've known you for a couple of years now. And we've had conversations um, where you've mentioned your mom in passing. Pretty much most of the time when we talk, your mom's in passing. You know, that you either going to speak to your mom this evening or you run the phone to your mom or something's going on with your mom. Or the recent one is, is that you're quite worried about her. Um, at the moment with the state of the coronavirus in in the United States. As I approach my 40s, I'm also reflecting on my my changing relationship with my own mother. Can you tell me about what your relationship is like today with your mother? A mother that sounds like has really been an incredibly foundational and central figure in your life? My mom, well, she's my best friend. It sounds so corny and so cheesy, but and I hadn't said it to her in a really long time, and I finally said it the other day. Best friend, I love you. Uh, no, my mom, <laughs> my mom, and it's definitely changed. I mean, it's only become more, it's changed since I've become a mother. Because you have those aha uh-huh moments, like, oh, yeah, okay. And then you send a message to your mom, sorry for everything I did. You know, you always have those little, I have those, like, periodically. And um, and so, yeah, as, as a mom now with my mom, it's been, it's just taking it to a whole other level. My mom has been um, my rock and foundation since day one. And she's been my number one fan. And I don't think she's ever said no to me. You can't do that or don't do that ever, except maybe one time. It was when I was leaving my husband. <laughs> I was in a, you know, having this crisis where I didn't want to be married anymore. And, um, and, uh, and my mom said, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want you to do that. Don't do that. And she didn't support me um, at the very beginning because she didn't understand. And Second, what I understood later was, uh, as much as my mom had this whole, you need to survive, um, uh, make sure that you can leave if ever you're unhappy or if ever it's abusive, um, don't take no shit from no man, even though she had this whole whole discourse and this experience, she's doing everything on her own, um, she didn't want me to leave my husband because he was such a good provider. Mm. She didn't have that. And her dad was a provider to her stepmother. Um, my my her her mother died when she was fourteen, so she always felt that she never had an example of a mother. So she was always kind of just winging it. Um, and her also being a, a spiritual creature that she is, always believed that her mother was somehow you know always beside her and kind of guiding her. And um, but she just always felt like I don't know how to be a mother. I did not have my mom to tell me these things. So, um, you know, so, but her father was very typical macho Mexican, only worked in the fields, and the wife was a middle order bride after my grandmother had passed away because he didn't know how to do anything. So in the meantime, my mother was sort of taking over until a middle order bride arrived, and they ended up being together for like the next 40 years. 
Um, but um, he was just, you know, so he provided, he was not violent, he was not abusive, but he provided. And, um, you know, and my mom just did not have that experience with men, but she was felt okay with me being in France and so far away from her because there was a man taking care of me who was there for me. So I think that despite her things that she would say to like, you know, make sure that I would always be okay and be a strong, independent woman, I was still her daughter and there was still this conditioning in her mind that, you know, but afterwards is that not also, you know, she knows that I have a good companion and someone I'm with who doesn't mistreat me and who, who who's a very good person because he wasn't extremely gentle and um, gentle and supportive person. Um, so that was the only time she was just ever like against something that I needed and wanted to do. Um, and, that, and that links into the poverty mindset. Right? Yeah, because, yeah, like, I want to make sure that you're okay. And when I want to make sure you're okay, I want to make sure you're also financially okay. And so, so, yeah, so aside from that, she's just always been my my fan, even with my most craziest ideas. Like, I want to move to, to France with someone you've never met before, and I'm only 20, you know. Like, she's like, hell, I love you. Come back when you want to, you know. So, um so she's always given me a freedom to go out and do very scary things that for me were exciting, but were scary for her. And now that I have a child, I look back, I'm like, how did you let me do those things? Are you crazy? Like, you let me go on an airplane to the other side of the world for a guy that you didn't, you never met, you know, and, um, and you let me do this, you let me do that. Like, how could she say, well, what are my choices? I fight with you and then you leave anyways, but you don't feel like you can come home or I let you go and you know that you can if you need to. Now I understand how courageous that is, having a child, which makes me appreciate her even more on so many levels. Um, feeding my children makes me appreciate my mother so much more on so many levels. So now I just want to take us to your mixed heritage. Yeah. Because there's you've got lots of interesting stories about this because you've had a DNA test, test yeah. done. National Geographic. National Geographic did a genome project, kind of like genome, gen, genographic. I think they called it a genographic project. Um, this was a while ago. It's about 10 years ago I did this. Um, and it was one of the first ones to come out. Now they've done like other ones like Me and 21 or, or something like that. Um, but there are a few out there, but they kind of did the first one. And, and I, I, if I understood correctly, it was, it was a swab test, a swab in the mouth test and you send it in and, and their project really depended on like, depended on participation. So they need a lot of people to participate and that way they can put all together this, this data. And, um, you know, and so with that, they can show you the migra migratory history of your DNA. Don't tell you who you're related to. Like if you're related to like, you know, to some famous general or to some king or queen, they don't show you that. But what they show you is on a map, um, your DNA and where it's mutated, and those mutating points sort of tell a story. And um, so my dad did it because my dad was really interested in um, in his in his DNA. Uh, in history, my dad was a history fanatic, and he had this. Um, what do you call it, Ancestry.com, a big tree, and he was just really obsessed with it, it was this thing. And so he had asked me to do it. Um, he asked me to do it because he thought maybe it could get him some information regarding his, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up, 
regarding his mother's side, because as a male, he could only do one side of his family and he wanted me to do something else. Anyways, he asked me to do it. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it for your birthday. So I did it and, um, and it ended up showing only the, the DNA from my mother's side, I think. And so, so it shows that we all started in Africa from Africa. My family went East, my blood, my DNA went East, um, through, um, the Middle East and went up into split off. One part went to China and stopped. And the other part went up above into Mongolia over the Bering Strait into Alaska and was just a straight line down the coast to Peru. And uh, after, and so they, they just show this, these little dots. And um, afterwards on the bottom, they give you a description of um, your genome, like kind of number, and then um, jumps in it where it mutated. And so with that, in that information, they'll tell you that you share a certain percentage of your DNA with these types of people and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so, yeah, say so that you share, like your blood is very similar, your DNA is very similar to um, Alaskan tribes, to coastal Native American tribes, and um, in through the North America, uh, Central America, and then down the coast. So I have similar DNA with people in Peru and, and with Eskimos. For some reason, the Eskimo thing really tripped me out because I guess I feel like I resemble more people from Peru, but I don't necessarily resemble Eskimos. Um, and so it was like, which we all know it's not about the resemblance, but, you know, we do like to think about, you know, we're visual people, so we think about the aesthetic and, and the outside, the way that we look. And um, ever since I was a kid, I was always drawn to Native American um, culture and mythology and um in history, my dad was a big Wild West fan. He loved uh, cowboy and Indian stories. He grew up in uh, the Rockies. And, um, you know, and, and my mom, um, we have Aztec, Aztec blood in, on my mom's side um, from, from Mexico. And um, we also have other smaller tribes in Mexico, um, people who look very Asian. They almost look Chinese and so there's all these other little like stories of how they came to be and they have their own language, their own dialect. And so I always thought that was always really fascinating and, and having like sort of the almond Asian eyes that I have, I was like, Oh, maybe I'm connected to these people. And I think it was always too somewhere in me is this constant need to connect and identity. Um, and so I liked the idea of like identifying with these people um, who were kind of these mythical long time lost civilization people which is like really sexy right and really cool what knowledge do they have ancestral knowledge and like all that stuff so I was really into it and um and so my mom so my dad was really into it my mom was really into it my mom after divorcing had this boyfriend um who was part Native American who had the beard uh the beard no beard because you can grow a beard um, no facial hair, but long, a long ponytail that he braided. He always had feather in his hair. Like he was representing his, you know, ethnic Indian, uh, Native American background. And, uh, he would always take us to powwows and powwows are, um, tribal gatherings. So you would have other people from the same tribe coming together for like sort of, uh, festivities. Um, or you'd have different tribes that come together for like a big, kind of like a big party. And so it would be music, traditional music would be dancing There'd be food um, and just people coming together. We call it 
a powwow. Um, and then we'd also have gatherings uh, for Day of the Dead, where we'd have Aztec dancers and there would be, you know, blessings and um, always sage burning, lots of sage everywhere, get rid of the bad juju, clear the space, because the veil is thin between the other world and this one. And when you're dancing, uh, you need to make sure that you only have the good spirits coming into you um, and being with you. And funny enough, Hawaiians do the same thing. They have a spiritual chant um, for protection when they dance so that they're not inviting anything negative into them and they are protected while they're sort of dancing between realms. So, um, so I totally grew up with that and uh, always somehow identified it, not necessarily in an exterior way, but always kind of in the ancestors know. They knew what was up. They, you know, go to them because they have knowledge. Go back to before and what did they say? And um, and always to this idea of like be one with the animals and like live in nature. So I'm still I'm still waiting for like my cabin in the woods mm-hmm. where I almost just like, you know, have a deer that comes to the door and I will feed it and, mm-hmm. and I will have my garden and and I will go pick berries. Like I'm still drawn to this whole uh, Sacagawea. You know, that's who I wanted to be as a kid. It wasn't a princess. It was Sacagawea, who was a badass woman leading these white men through, like, untamed wilderness to the Pacific Ocean. So doing it with a baby on her back. So for me, there was no one, you know, who could be cooler and more amazing than her. So I was playing with machetes as a kid. And my dad was all of, was totally cool with me pretending to be an Indian. So he was teaching me how to do one match fires and teaching me how to do bow and arrow. I got a bow and arrow when I was about six or seven. And, uh, you know, my first pair of shoes were moccasins that my dad sewed for me. So we were just always kind of this, this constant sort of little story of, of that going on in the background somewhere. And um, so powerful as a young girl to be growing up with such freedom and wilderness in your space and in your heart, right? And and the dreams that you have of being wild and free. Yeah. And, and that's so precious because we don't, though those forms of representations are not readily available for young girls and boys. And your story is, 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 is so beautiful because it challenges all of those all of that social conditioning that goes on very, very early on through books, through TV, through through advertisements on the streets. Yeah. And so I always found it peculiar that I had these two very I mean, open-minded parents. Um, my dad was just very, like I said, like, let's say fair, like, you know, I had, I had an opportunity with him when we reconnected after a lot of years of not seeing each other. And before he passed away, um, I made a kind of a joke in passing saying like, you were letting me climb trees, go on the roof, like doing lots of dangerous stuff, you know? And, and I kind of said it in a way that like, you know, you, you didn't care. I mean, he, yeah, you knew he cared, but he was kind of like, oh yeah, let's do whatever. He was like, don't think, you know, response was like, don't think I wasn't holding my breath the entire time you're doing that. And it was such a powerful thing that he said. Um, when we reconnected, we didn't really talk about the past. I wasn't interested. Time was limited. He was sick. I didn't want to talk about all that. I didn't need answers, it felt, for me. Um, but that was one of the 
few things that I did bring up from the past. And um, I was having this story that I told myself as to why he let me do those things or, you know, that's just the way my dad was. And for him to say, like, you know, to, very serious face, like, don't think I wasn't holding my breath. He was scared for me. Obviously, he didn't want me to get hurt, but he knew that I needed to do those things. And for him, it was important that, you know, he always talked about his mother being this badass woman. And he wanted to name me after her because he wanted me to be this badass girl like his mom was. His mom, this uh, tiny Italian, uh, first-generation Italian woman who spoke Italian in their little tiny village before she spoke English in the U.S., um, and, um, she was like wearing pants when you weren't supposed to wear pants. She was, you know, stealing motorcycles and going for joy rides. She just was her own person. Like, you know, and this is in the 1920s, 30s, 40s when it was different and it was left such an impression in him and me being his first daughter, um, he just was obsessed with the idea of me being like his mother, uh, whether or not that's healthier or however you want to see that, but he wanted me to, to sort of kind of embody those, those things about her. So I, I knew that about my grandmother and I kind of understood like why you like, you climb the pole every day. So you're as strong as the boys and you run as fast as the boys and you can hit all the boys and you defend yourself. And so even my father was giving me this whole, you know, don't take no, no shit from no boys. But it really sounds like in two very different ways, your mother and your father played a really important role. Before you even got to the age of kind of 12, of, of, of allowing you to express yourself, that then allowed you at the age of 18 to just go and decide confidently, you know, to head to Hawaii, do the thing you did on a cruise ship, come to France, all of these moves at such a really young, tender age are quite big moves to make. And with confidence and what sounds like gusto, you know, you really, the wind was blowing in a direction. You felt that you had to go there and there was no rationale for it, but you went. And it feels like that's early years of socialization from two very important people in your life. I completely understand that it might be coming across like I'm romanticizing it a little bit, but but I do think these experiences give you a level of confidence that you can't buy, you know, yeah. or you can't necessarily nurture, it takes a long time to nurture later on in your life, but really starts from the early years. Yeah, and that's what's been uh, a challenge with my stepdaughter um, is, is, is developing that confidence and how, and feeling that you're working against another current, which is whatever education she's getting at her home, the so, other 50% of the time. So two different parenting styles. Two different, two different kind of women, two different women from two completely different backgrounds. Um, you know, and, and I don't want to have to, um, to, to, to fight with it, but it sometimes it's very difficult because you feel like you're getting another complete opposite um, way of way of living, way of thinking, way of being from from this this other person. And here you are, and and sometimes you just want to you, you tell yourself you gotta be quiet and just lead by example. 
tell your story and, you know, because the way that I try to instill confidence is not necessarily the best way, I guess, but sort of like trial and error trying to get her to, to be a bit, bit more ballsy and, um, and, and to have that confidence. And so I already see at a young age, her having this lack of confidence and it's very worrisome. Uh, I worry. Uh, I don't worry about Vigo having confidence. That's, um, that's your son. That's my son. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry about that. And he's, he's pretty confident. Um, and, uh, but I do ask myself if I were to have a girl, my own girl, I wonder how, how hard I would be on, not on her, but with her in the same way that, you know, I, I had to get this tough love and it's also like, you know, you want something done, do it yourself. You know, no one's going to save you, but yourself kind of. Yeah. Um, I just want to go back to your mixed heritage. Yeah. Yes. So my dad is Irish Italian. Yeah. My mother is Mexican and Mexican includes, um, Aztec, Spanish and French. <laughs> wow. Too. So, wow. Yeah. And so in terms of your experience as a woman of color in California versus France and your experience of discrimination or racism. Um, I know that growing up in my first elementary school, because we moved when I was eight to the next town over in that elementary school, um, I wasn't aware that I was brown or kind of lower middle class. We moved to the next town over, which was demographically like more white, more well, more well off. And um, that was where for the first time I was like, I'm a bit more different from all these people. Um, and that was the first time too, I was experiencing mean girls for whatever reason I had for the first time. I'm the new kid and I have a group of people that are very mean to me. Um, and this was fifth grade and uh, fourth grade, fifth grade. What does that mean in terms of age? Uh, I was, moved when I was eight. So I was eight, between eight and 10 years old. Okay. And so, um, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of experienced that for the first time. And then I didn't really have any kind of discriminatory experiences that I can really remember. But, but these kind of sexual cliches, um, and this kind of exoticism of being like Latina and having the, the body morphology that I have, which was like, you know, kind of like a bigger butt and, um, full lips and things like that. Um, luckily both have deflated over the years. Not luckily, but it's just after <laughs> having a kid, both they're not the same as before. But nothing, um, nothing. nothing is the same <laughs> as it was before. Um, but I do remember at a young age, and this is not necessarily race, but also being a young girl in a man's world, um, kind of being hit on at a young age by men because of, and I always felt like maybe if I was white and I was blonde, these kind of men or these men in general wouldn't be hitting on me the same way as being a Latina and having the figure that I do have and this, you know, these, these body shape that, you know, is kind of typical to certain, to certain ethnic groups. And, um, you know, and so I did have a lot of that going on. Um, and I don't know if that would have been different 
of anything, but I do know that my mom had a lot more problems uh, with renting apartments and applications being accepted once they finally saw her um, and, um, and, and us. Um, my mom did, I think, a pretty good job hiding it from us. Um, but later on in the year, she did say that, that we had been denied um, a lot of, you know, several, several times apartments because on paper, Lydia Cunningham looks like the whitest name in the world. And then you see her and she's pretty dark skinned and, and uh, dark haired. And it was, he has two kids and, um, you know, there'd be some excuse as to why um, the apartment was no longer available. But my mom, uh, having lived through it a lot more, she could see it like the look that the up and down look and things like that. So, um, you know, I had a couple of boyfriends that were wore white and blonde. And um, uh, I remember getting kind of looked at because being a, a you know, short Mexican girl with this tall white guy. Um, but it felt like more or less where we lived, we did have um, a big Mexican community. Um, but it was divided. The town was divided. There was a whole East End um, where it was kind of mixed with a little bit upper upper middle class and like lower middle class or even um, lower class. And then we had a, a, the West End, which was just only kind of like the poor blacks and Mexicans who lived there. And um, my mom always found a way to sort of have us living in between. Um, but um, yeah, it was just mostly feeling unwelcome in some some people's homes with my friends, um, which I ended up not being friends with for a very, very long time. But um, uh, did it affect you? Well, yeah, I think so. As a kid, you feel that. At least I felt it, feeling unwelcomed, um, was not that, really knowing why. Um, do you think it was? Do you think it added to um, your ideas about belonging and not belonging? Yeah, because I think some more, I, I, you have these kind of, um, um, you know, I wanted, I wanted to have this kind of house. I wanted to have these kinds of things. I wanted this kind of life, but I couldn't because my mom had only this kind of job and she was alone and we only had these kind of apartments and stuff. So you kind of longed to, my, my mom was literally other side of the tracks success. Like she grew up on one side of the railroad tracks and you know, abusive husband said, you never make it across the tracks. You're going to stay here. You're going to live here. You're going to die here in the ghetto. And my mom literally physically went across the tracks and started her life. And for me, it was more like probably kind of an emotional, um, cultural railroad tracks that was like, I want to be in these sure. houses. I want to be, sure. I want to be shopping at Trader Joe's. I don't know if anyone knows Trader Joe's. It's like the, the Whole Foods before those Whole Foods. But it was like, we didn't shop there because first we didn't have that kind of like culture as a shop there. And it was like a little bit more expensive, but you know, I want these things. I didn't want to be rich, but I wanted these things that I saw these kind of more educated people having. And, um, um, but it remember it being such a driving force, but I had one example in my life. Um, my, I call her my godmother. She was a neighbor that we had Leah um, she's my white mom. Um, when we moved to this new town, we moved into the apartment building. She was living above. And she was 21, so I was I was eight. She was 21, and her and my mom became really good friends. My mom could make really good margaritas, and likely it was super <laughs> into drinking. And so they get together and have margaritas, and then like 
me and my sister would put on like shows, right? So it was like a nice little weekend thing we did. And so Leah really liked us and she would go offer to babysit us and she would bake cookies with us. And I'm like, this is totally a white thing because it was a white thing. <laughs> Baking cookies was for white people. It was not for us. Like, especially if my mom was busy all the time, like, no, we didn't do that. And, um, and then other things, she listened to white music. Like, what is this other kind of white music? And when I say white music, I'm like, Tears for Fears, Jimmy Buffett. Like, these things are like, what is this? And she had gotten a master's. She was a single white woman doing her thing, living her life. Boyfriends for her for, like, whatever. As soon as it wasn't fun, she got rid of a boyfriend. She was never emotionally clingy or anything. She just did her thing, and she was her person. And so I had this example of this person, and I was like, I want to be like Leah. Like, I want what Leah has. Leah would travel. She'd have all these stories, and she, she stayed in my life even after she moved away. And, um, and she still is in my life uh, today. And, um, you know, she got her own apartment. She had her own space. She had her own things. I'm like, man, I want this. Like, I want this. And so she was, like, the mom that went to college. She was the mom, for me, like, the – as she was kind of like my adult authority figure next to my mom. Um, so, you know, so I would look at my mom and she would say, your mom's smart, your mom's this, but your mom works hard, not, you know, not smart. Your mom works too hard. And so she would have these things to say about my mother. And, um, you know, and sometimes she's like, don't be like your mom. And it was the only person saying, don't make these mistakes that your mom makes. Even if my mom to me was like everything, I was able to, because of her, identify these faults like okay but what's good about my mom and like and hold on to that and like replicate that and like repeat that and you know and then even Leah like was sometimes too cold for me and I'd be like I don't really like that part of you you know <laughs> but I have these two examples to be like okay I want this and I want that and from the two different women from this two different women have these two different worlds like this white experience uh with her two parents that were still together she had her older brother you know, she just had this very cookie cutter, like white bread, normal <laughs> experience that that was the only person that I could actually see that through. And then I had my mom who had this whole other unique experience, obviously. So sometimes that's why I'm like, she's my white mom. She showed me the white world that I was not completely aware of. So, because we were always stuck between those two, kind of Mexican, kind of white, but, you know, um, but not really fitting into either one and not really having any other broader example other than what, what my mom, than what my mom is. So, you know, I, like, I'm always grateful that Leah just happened to be there and that she liked us enough to, like, <laughs> stick around for so long. And Those negotiations of belonging, have they quietened or are they still very much present or is it all about context so for instance when you go back to California whenever you go back to California now <laughs> under this current global pandemic do they resurface I've settled into myself and I am like my own sovereign nation where I belong as myself with myself and I, this, those, those voices have really quieted. They've become more a, a need for family, more of a, like, a not need to belong, but a need of, of family and tribe 
for my son so that I'm not the only example and not just not necessarily wanting to fit in, but just have people around that will, like Leah did for me, like show that there are different ways to to go. Um, there are more not, options. There are more options. Yeah. That you have options. Yeah. And so, but this need to 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 this identity, I've just either it's coming to terms with it or it's appreciating it as it is because it is what it is. It's not going to change. And also, just through the years, realizing that I actually I have cousins who are the same, who are, you know, in Spanish we say gringas, like they're white girls. But they are Chicana like me. And that Chicana, this term Chicana talks about any first, second, third generation Mexican American living in the U.S. who has this Mexican heritage, but is also white. And so in that, always feeling kind of like an imposter, just being like there's different shades of it. There's different shades of, of to be Chicana. And I'm just this kind of watered down shade. But it doesn't take away from the fact that I do have this heritage and and I have parts of it and that through the years I've also realized I'm a lot more Mexican than I realize I am and that was through literature and that was through a lot of stand-up comedy actually like uh, Mexican-American comics that are talking about their experiences and, and connecting to that in this very like like distant way like I don't know who these people are but I'm listening to their story and I'm like shit that was that was how my mom was with me too or that's how I I react to that too, and realizing that reactions and 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 perceptions and 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 certain things like this is actually really rooted Mexican culture that's in me. That okay, yeah, maybe I don't speak Spanish, or maybe I don't hundred percent look the part. Maybe I don't know all the stories or all the cultural references, but I do have these ones, and and it's like, turned out to be enough for me to be okay with with who I am. And then that little bit, having the, the joy to share it with the kids, even if they have no idea what it is at the moment, that they'll, like, connect the dots later. But, you know, feeling stuck in the middle, like, I don't anymore. It's, it's given it's given way to, I think, other, other new identities, like becoming a mom and a business owner. And then, like, what is it to be 40 with all the accumulative, like, experience that I've had, too, like, then... Um, what does that look like? And so this need to belong has really dissipated. Um, and, you know, and, and to enjoy my own, com- my own company too, even more than I have in the past. This is a really great segue into my last and final mm-hmm. question, which is about self-care. And as a fitness uh, expert, I think you know quite a bit about self-care. <laughs> How do you personally do self-care and how would you like to do it better if you could or what are you striving for every day to do better it's a new word I love that it's a new word because it's existed forever but we just didn't call it anything before call it mommy time or me time you know but now it's self-care which is great that it has a name at the moment it's not much um I think for my Connection to my my self-esteem, self-confidence connected to my physical body because a lot of our, our speaking general, but even my like well-being is, is being comfortable in my skin. Um, I've 
over the years, um, I have now the habit of focusing on what what my body can do and not what it looks like, mm. right? Um, and it's one thing that I have to remind clients of because the, the frustration is real, the self-esteem and the self-doubt and the self-hate, it's all very real when we have these, um, these pressures to look a certain way, to drop the baby weight. So for me, every day, um, before, as I'm falling asleep, I, I have like kind of like a silent prayer, who's ever listening, um, is even maybe just me who's listening, um, and my body, because it does listen, is a thank you for the day and a thank you for my body to have carried me through everything. And that's just for my emotional, mental well-being. Um, and there's a lot of research around gratitude, right? Right. Yeah. And your body is listening. If you say terrible things about your body, your body's going to hear it. Those cells are going to hear it. Um, and, and not just this whole idea of like they're listening, but also what's released in your body, hormonally speaking, when we're stressed, we know that there's these stress hormones that wreak havoc. And we know that there's these happiness hormones that do wonderful things and, and, uh, uh, stress releasing benefits and things like that. So, you know, your, your body is listening on a cellular level and here's your thoughts and here's what you say. So you need to talk well about yourself and, um, and that's not even to say that the people who are listening to you talk about yourself because you're training them, right, how to talk to you and how to see you. It's a good way to sort of wrap up the day and it's a good way to go to sleep feeling full um, and to reset the thoughts when maybe during the day you're thinking about sometimes what you don't have or things aren't perfect or things not, the day didn't go as you wanted to go. Your class didn't work as good as you wanted it to be. But at the end, you just say, you know what, aside from all those things, this is what's good. Um, the physical parts like lavender. I was going to say the lavender. Sage, <laughs> lavender and sage. Do like lavender oil, essential oil. Uh, I have rose water. I really like the smells. I kind of spray that after the shower. I take really long showers. I let myself have a long shower and just let the water run over me and um, feel really, really clean at the end of the day. And then that rose water and like lavender oil. So it's it's rituals, isn't it? Yeah. Daily rituals. And that's what it's been. It's become unknowing to me. Like, I mean, not on purpose, but it's become now this, I like the way that it makes me feel. So you kind of just do it repetitively. And, and so every night it's the shower at night and it's the rose water, it's the little lavender oil, and then it's my thank yous. And then, you know, and then I, I wrap up that day with a nice little bubble. <laughs> that's the perfect way to finish our session together. Thank you for listening to this episode of This Is Bam. And thank you to Candice Cunningham for being raw and honest about the good, bad and the ugly. Please share and subscribe to This Is Bam wherever you find your podcasts to automatically receive more episodes.